I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News and author of the best-selling book, Breaking the News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On today's episode, we give you the latest Ukraine news updates, which, in essence, is that Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are valiantly, and thus far successfully, fighting back against Putin and pro-Russian forces. This is a pleasant surprise, to be sure. And it also provides an opportunity for us to take a deeper dive into the geopolitics of the Russian invasion and the world's response. By the way, the left now loves guns and they love wishing people thoughts and prayers. Odd. So who benefits in this crisis? The military industrial complex, the media industrial complex, China perhaps. And who suffers? The Ukrainian people, of course, but who else? And just how phony has Joe Biden's response been? We're literally still buying Russian oil right now. Insanity. And we break it all down for you in today's opening. Then we get into Biden's new affirmative action Supreme Court nominee. Mask hypocrisy has hit a new humiliating low in Los Angeles. And more details on the devastating Biden inflation to come as well. For the first time ever, we have three guests on today's show. We begin our week of tributes to Andrew Breitbart, who passed away on March 1st, 2012 with testimonials from Dr. Sebastian Gorka, Mark Levin, and Breitbart Cartel Chronicles director Brandon Darby. Andrew's legacy is vast, and these three gentlemen clearly have internalized many of the Breitbart News founders' most important lessons. All that ahead, but first, a word from our sponsors. Um, So in terms of getting into the news, and we'll plug a little bit on Friday's show, which I think was really interesting, where I kind of retrace some of my steps of one where I did not get it right with the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which a lot of people, you know, like to act like they get everything right. And uh, I I feel like I get most everything right, but I don't did not get that one right. Um, And it was. Uh, and I did kind of retrace what the data points were that could have led me to a different conclusion other than that um, uh, Putin was probably not going to invade. And he was mostly engaging in patterns that were similar to things we've seen over the last eight years. And um, it was still even the, the media was just sort of d- deciding to focus on it because they wanted to focus on it relative to other things. And uh, there were a couple of things that did change over the last month. And there were a couple of data points that probably suggested maybe things were a little different than they were uh, in uh, months and years past. And I kind of broke those down uh, just to, to do a quick recap. Uh, the thing that was, I think, the most compelling to me was when Joe Biden made it very clear that the West was not going to do anything if Putin invaded. And he said this multiple times, but he really had the statement of minor incursions might not get any sort of uh, negative pushback about uh, towards the end of January. In retrospect, that's the quote of the year and uh, one of the quotes of the century if this thing really spirals out of control because it did send a signal for Putin to that, you know, he, he was going to get away with it. Uh, but, but other things he was doing is the he had he had Germany over a barrel. Uh, NATO and the U.N. were clearly feckless. Remember, the U.N. was having a Security Council meetings that were chaired by Russia on Russia. So it all showed that there wasn't really much pushback that was going to take place from the world. And it was just going to be on the Ukrainian people. And Russia had a pretty clear glide path, I think, to win this thing very quickly. Just try to either kill Zelensky or get him to leave the country, install an apparatchik puppet of some sort. 
and then um, basically do the model that they used in Georgia um, about a, a decade and a half ago, which worked pretty well, which is exactly what I'm describing. And that seemed like something that was probably gonna work. And I'll tell you though, the media, I think was very culpable with this. I think the media has got a lost for war. I think they love covering war. I think that they, uh, it helps a lot of their careers, it helps a lot of their ratings, and they enjoy it as much as the military industrial complex does. And so I think their focus on this and them amping up Putin as the big bad boogeyman of the world, for whatever reason and reasons, I will specify um, top of the show today, but their desire to see Russia be the bad guy. And it's so vitally important for the United States to portray Russia that way. I do think uh, it was able to make the playing field, uh, it, it it became clear the more talk we did through that process and through world leaders being forced to weigh in and making it clear they had no plan to deal with Putin, I think it became more and more obvious to Putin, hey, if I invade, there's nothing that's really gonna happen to me. Um, uh, so long as I can beat the Ukrainian people. And so I think that did hurt. And I think it did make it much more likely we got the invasion. So ultimately we got it and the invasion is here. And uh, one thing that I kept saying repeatedly throughout uh, the conversations that we had when I said I didn't think he was gonna invade was that I think Putin would only do it unless he's really super strategically a slam dunk because he's pretty savvy the way he wields power. And now there's a new data point emerging that I think backs up my original take. Obviously my, my Take wasn't wasn't on the money, but my original take that maybe the timing isn't perfect. Well, Putin is not winning the war right now. Putin is arguably losing the war because the I think the emotions in the world and I think the geopolitical uh, the the sensibilities of the world do not want Putin doing what he's doing. And now he has not been able to get Zelensky, even though there are now reports that there are militias being sent into Kiev to assassinate Zelensky, and obviously the desire is to push him out. And it is very scary at the moment because Putin is now doing nuclear overtures. He's actually threatening at a, at a nuclear level, putting his nuclear forces on high alert. Obviously, that escalates t- tensions. Um, you know, he's making very aggressive moves in terms of uh, not just tr- ground troops, but tanks as well. And lots of bombing, lots of shelling, and the list goes on. But while many are trying to flee the country in Ukraine, many are hunkered down, many are taking to the streets and they are fighting back and they're fighting back effectively to this point. Um, There are reports though, according to Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, that the food and medicine is running low. So we don't know how long this could go on. It could go on for minutes and then we could hear, you know, I could be breaking into news today or any day this week with really bad news. But they're trying their best to defend their country and you're seeing some incredible heroism. And, um, you know, we had some fo- uh, some footage of or some photos, at least of Miss Ukraine over the weekend fighting on the front lines. And the quote of the year, other than, you know, Joe Biden, this minor quote, incursion quote, uh, is from President Zelensky saying the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride, because there's a big mission from the United States against to evacuate Zelensky and others wanted him out and, and reasonably so if he did wanted to get out then you know there was a obviously he's a target number one for putin to try to assassinate him that is the goal or at least a a possible goal that would be a good outcome for putin and putin needs this thing to wrap up because this is a very bad look for him it's very embarrassing and it shows that russia is not particularly strong uh relative to the way the media portrays them in the world 
The media is insistent that Russia is a big, bad boogeyman, even though we know they don't have as many people, uh, not a fraction of the people like the United States, for example. They're economically middling at best now as a country. And they're, they're very nuclear, their nuclear capabilities are incredibly powerful. And this is the thing that scares a lot of people. And we know that Putin is a KGB guy who is always constantly thinking about Soviet Union. And that's why they're scary. Uh, however, they really are not clearly that their inability to get this done quickly is very bad for them. It's a very bad look for Putin because not only is the world angry with Putin, now the world is seeing that Putin is not able to uh, get this victory in an efficient way. So big Joey Biden said that he should leave the Biden administration. And uh, of course, the tensions are very high. Of course, everyone would like for him to leave in a way, unless you want to be someone who thinks that this is a hill worth dying on and you want to see a, a hero emerge, someone who really stands up on behalf of his country and behalf of his people. Not to say Zelensky's a perfect guy, but certainly what we're witnessing here is his best qualities at work. Because a lot of bravery goes into something like that, knowing that you know some of those one one of the most mighty nations in the country, though clearly not as mighty as we thought, wants you dead. It's a big deal. So I had a really interesting thought yesterday when I learned late in the evening that the United States is going to be sending some really heavy artillery to. Ukraine. We're going to be sending Stinger missiles. The, these are uh, the. I have to admit, I'm not a guy who's partial to explosions. I don't tend to, to form my opinions based on what has the most explosions, which a lot of people do. Sometimes with their entertainment, they need a lot of explosions in their entertainment, and a lot of it comes to you know the way we wage war, or not wage war. Is people like to see bombs dropping. A lot of people on uh, television news love to watch good bomb drop. And a lot of neocons enjoy it. A lot of people like watching a bomb go off. Like oh, They do. They like watching some explosions. And I'll tell you, if you like explosions, the Stinger missiles, you're going to like those. Because they're kind of, I think these are the ones that are supposed to go through the tanks. Supposed to blow up the tanks. And there's a lot of tanks rolling around. And I, I found myself momentarily kind of thinking, oh, that's cool. That's a good idea. Because, you know, I think the United States should do what we can to arm uh, Ukraine. I think by and large. They're the good guys here, though, you know, maybe, maybe not 100% black and white scenario if you look back historically overall. But in this case, seems like this is this is this is this was pretty clear cut as it goes. So but do you want to send ground troops, American ground troops in there? No, you don't do that. So it seems like the um, it seems like sending the weapons is good. So I was pretty excited momentarily. And then I, wait a minute. Who makes the Stinger missiles? And I thought, that's Raytheon. Raytheon makes it. Uh, Lloyd Austin was on the board at Raytheon. If you look at who the board at Raytheon donates to, it is a who's who of establishment Republicans and Democrats. So I find myself simultaneously excited that they're sending missiles because I want Ukraine to win and I want Putin to lose. But then I also, I'm not an idiot, and I know what's going on here. And a lot of people are very happy that this is, that this is going on, that we now have a scenario where Putin, the big bad guy, is his stuff is going to get shot at by gigantic weaponry made by companies like Raytheon. This is the military-industrial complex. And when you look at the way we handled 
this crisis with Biden basically sending a signal we're not going to do anything. The UN and NATO, et cetera, all of them acting like we're not going to do anything. And then, so Putin invades, and then, oh, let's get some contracts out there, send some weapons. You, you see the dollar signs. You see that old-timey cash register, cha-ching, with the eyelids coming down and the dollar signs on the eyelids, like in the old-timey cartoons. What's going on? So th- this, is, this is sadly the, the choice we have. And there's something going on beyond just the simple good guy, bad guy, evil versus good narrative here. Though this one, is, admittedly, it's pretty close. But just know that there is a huge portion of the population, from the neocons to the people who thought Hillary got railroaded in 2016, to all sorts of people, who people in the media, corporate media, who all love the idea of framing Russia as the gravest threat to the United States, even more than the people think. And they love the idea of these weapons purchases and these giant contracts and expansion of various budgets. Uh, All of that to come because Putin was aggressive. Interesting, right? So then what's going to happen in Ukraine? So what is the best case scenario for these groups of people? I mean, maybe it's not realistic to see America get involved in the hot war. I don't think it's a nuclear war. I don't think people really want a nuclear war, even on the, the far end of the military-industrial complex. But maybe the best thing for uh, the military-industrial complex is if there is this, some sort of prolonged skirmish in this region where Russia is kind of tied up fighting Ukraine. And we're sending weapons that we spend a lot of money on. And a lot of people get paid on, and a lot of people get to upgrade their uh, their automobiles here in the United States because of these weapons contracts. Make sure those country club dues come in on time. And then Ukraine and Russia can get tied up fighting with each other. And the, really, the, the victims here, the main victims, are the Ukrainian people. And then other than that, uh, everyone else is doing fine in this scenario. And also Putin, too, but that's kind of that's his own fault because he went in there and he obviously wasn't ready to go. I'm not saying these are hard and fast answers to what's going on, but it is, let's, let's not stop at the most obvious takes. Let's try to get, try to look at who benefits and who is really, uh, who, who does poorly in these scenarios. Note that China has basically abandoned Russia in all this. They said they're on their own. They're traditionally friends, but as we discussed um, with some of our guests last week, John Hayward writes about this particularly well for us, Brightport News that China, their economic empire is possibly benefited by this. So, because the United States sending in heavy artillery, you get the Germans sending in the heavy artillery as well, all this to confront Putin. And um, this puts China in a position where instead of being, you know, partners with Russia, they can kind of have Russia as their, their kind of little buddy, their sidekick in a way. And with Russia getting tied up fighting Ukraine not well, it does give them even more free reign of that region. So their sort of Asian expansion when it comes to their personal hegemony and their desire to colonize so much of the world and their one China policy, be it economic or or literal through physical territory, both of which are happening, the economic one at a much faster rate, uh, arguably they, they benefit from this as well. And a lot of the 
bad guys on Breitbart.com and on their show, they benefit from China quite a bit. And I do think China probably makes that okay in this as well. So this is why I don't think that we should all get, don't let yourself get trapped into a tribal ideology in this one. Even one where I do think it's pretty clear cut is, you know, short term, Zelensky the good guy, Ukraine the good guys, Russia the bad guys. But it's always more complicated than that. And there's a lot of interest groups in D.C. who are benefiting from this. Perhaps China is benefiting from this. The Hillary Clinton obsessives and the Democrat establishment types are benefiting from this because they just have all this vengeance. The neocons are always benefiting from this. They could benefit more if this was doing better in the polls, though. Like Big Joey Biden's polls on this are just horrific. 33% of Americans approve of his handling of this conflict. And I, I can't believe, I don't even know why it would be 33%. Even we sent the weapons kind of slow, it seemed like, didn't we? So uh, this is all the, and, and Wall Street in the meantime is probably going to get even richer due to China, who is going to do fine here, if not better, with Russia's weakness in the region becoming more clear. So I know I'm giving a lot more analysis than headlines per se, but I do think that this is important because I think a lot of the time the analysis actually begets the headlines. Um, in this particular instance. I think we saw that a lot over the last few weeks. I think the analysis that Putin was inevitably going to invade, and when there was no real counter to that, I think it did make it much more likely Putin was going to invade. I just do, and I'll keep repeating that. So, scary stuff with the nuclear threats. U.S. Embassy telling Americans to leave immediately. But in the meantime, Zelensky's still alive, fighting back, and a lot of bravery there on the front lines in Ukraine. So good for them. I congratulate them. And I do, at the end of the day, think it's good we're sending them the arms. I just, I'm not stupid enough to know, to think this is some sort of black and white thing. Like America's so benevolent that we're defending democracy. We're defending our ability to get luxury sedans and democracy to a small degree. So that's a, uh, this is both ideologically and monetarily. I think the the reality of this is not as pleasant as we would like it to be sometimes. So even though, of course, I'm rooting very hard for the Ukrainian people, and uh, it's hard not to see Zelensky as a heroic figure at this point, potentially a, you know, the one of the heroes of modern times, even though he's not a perfect guy, we could break into, you know, the deals, he doesn't deal with the press great at all shuts down a lot, of the, a lot of the press. But he's still here, and he's defending, trying to defend his country. Admirable. Also interesting to note the polling, how Democrats prefer to defend the Ukraine-Russian border in the United States than they do to, to defend the U.S. southern border. You guys all knew that intuitively, but there is now polling to back that up. Peter Schweitzer and, and was on with me on uh, Charlie Kirk's podcast. I think it was Thursday we recorded it. Um, but the, I talked to Peter about it, and Peter said that he does believe the Russian oligarchs probably are holding assets for Putin and probably have very embarrassing material on Hunter Biden. So we know they're holding the assets for Putin, these Russian oligarchs, and they probably have embarrassing material on Hunter. Interesting conversation. I will put that out there. Um, both of those. State of the Union tomorrow, so we will have coverage uh, at on Patriot, special coverage, we'll have special coverage on Breitbart, 
And then in particular, in the morning show on Wednesday, we'll start breaking down all the clips. I just don't know what Joey's going to talk about. What's he going to talk about? He's got nothing going. He's got no agenda. We got the Biden inflation. We got the, the gas prices through the roof. We got an open border. Now there's war, maybe even nuclear war breaking out halfway around the world. It's not good. It's been about the worst first year or so that you could imagine. You can't really picture being worse. And the other one, the, the sleeper, in my view, and I don't have my fresh data yet, but the, and the weekend data always kind of lags a bit. But the coronavirus cases and deaths are slightly higher ballpark than they were this time last year. And still, we're removing coronavirus restrictions, which, of course, I want to do. But we're not removing them because of science, removing them because of political science. It's become more and more clear that the scientists, the friendly fascist, Francis Collins, Dr. Hot Mess, Rochelle Walensky, Dr. Tony Fauci, these are all political scientists. They're political scientists. That's what they are. They're not scientists, scientists, they're political scientists. They use politics to, it's the science of politics. Obviously, I'm being tongue in cheek, but am I? It's really what it's all about, isn't it? Um, again, happy to see the restrictions go. But they're kind of half-hearted. Really embarrassing scenes at the Screen Actors Guild Awards yesterday, which showed Hollywood celebrities going maskless while the help, the staff, many of them um, uh, were masked up. And the Los Angeles Unified School District, where the, the jurisdiction in which the event took place, uh, are all masked up as well. And L.A. County is beginning to relax into our mask mandates, but not for kids. So if you have a three-year-old in L.A. County who goes to preschool, they'll be wearing a mask today. But the celebrities don't have to wear them. Why is it that the coronavirus doesn't spread to celebrities? Why doesn't it spread to Democrat politicians? Or why are we not supposed to care? It's politics. It's nothing to do with the science of it. It's political science. So I actually watched a few minutes of this because my uh, mother's into it, and we, we had it on. She was over for the birthday party. And really pathetic, really uninspiring speeches, a lot of generic and uninformed Ukraine references, a lot of things you've never heard of win the awards. Nothing that does well in the box office wins awards. It's a dying industry. It's an industry that sold out to China, and now they're uh, it's such a bad luck. you got the help walking around as second-class citizens with their masks on. you get the kids running around the the area with their masks on, second-class citizens. It's a true oligarchy that we've got. And the consequences, I guess, are pretty slight. Another one I will mention, the pick for the Supreme Court from Joe Biden, Kintanji Brown-Jackson, who will be the most divisive and political pick of all time because she was chosen specifically because she's a black woman. Uh, I have find that unbelievable that that is that that was what it came down to from a guy joe biden who literally referred to black children as roaches as recently as 2017 now all of a sudden he's uh he's he is mr elevating of the black people and the black community and we're supposed to give him credibility on this issue guy who said bossing would lead to a racial jungle not to say that policy worked I'm just saying that to speak in basically in blatantly racist terms, Biden's okay with that. So she was only confirmed last year to the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals. 53-47, so a tight vote. Three Republicans joined. 
And um, her opinions throughout her career have a very high rate of getting overturned. So there's nothing to suggest that this person is a brilliant person or is a person who got chosen for her intellect or pedigree or her um, uh, her talent. I think she went to Harvard, but I mean, they all went to Harvard or Yale. Is there anyone who didn't? Amy Barrett. They all went to Harvard or Yale. So it's it's the, I don't know, she clerked for Breyer, which I guess people like doing this ceremonial thing where they fill the seat with someone who clerked for the person who had that seat. People like to do that. So Biden said it was long overdue for black women to be on the court and that the court doesn't look like America. Well, who cares what it looks like? Uh, Clarence Thomas doesn't look like your average Republican, and yet he might be the best judge on the whole court. So why do I care what he looks like? I don't care what Clarence Thomas looks like. I care that Clarence Thomas is right on 99.99999% of stuff he says legally. That's what I care about. This is a re, it, it is illiberalism. So this is why I detest the word liberal. and I don't refer to most leftists, most Democrats now as liberals. This is illiberal. The liberal ideology is a colorblind society where freedom and ideas and values, that's what matters. Not what matters is controlling what people are based on their skin tone. That's purely leftist idea, reinstalling, reinstalling racism. Also on the far right, of course, they like that as well. Um, she helped strike down Trump's border controls. So it should be disqualifying for any Republican to support. She was not the pick, by the way, of Jim Clyburn, who basically saved the election for Biden, as you might recall the history of the uh, 2020 uh, campaign, which I won't dwell on here. But he wanted a federal judge, Michelle Childs of South Carolina. And Biden said, nope. We're going with Kintanji Brown Jackson. Hit the bricks, Clyburn. So it's a. I'm wondering. I'm wondering how that will go because Biden doesn't have a lot of friends in Washington. It seems like Jim Clyburn was one of his friends. But the one that blew my mind was actually that uh, Paul Ryan is actually related to her by family by marriage. So Paul Ryan, who's on the Fox board, the ultimate swamp creature, the. Speaker of the House that compromised or at least helped compromise first couple of years of the Trump presidency and is now raking in money places. No doubt making Fox News a worse place. And uh, he he prays on her, of course, Kintanji Brown Jackson. It's great. Does that make America better off? Consumer sentiment a decade low now. Durable good prices up the most in 47 years. Runaway inflation. All this happening, but we've got, hey, we got a Supreme Court going to look more like America. Okay. Dr. Gorka joins me just about every Thursday on the live show, Breitbart News Daily and Sirius XM Patriot, 6 a.m. Eastern Time and on the SXM app. But today we're not really getting into the news. We're getting into Andrew Breitbart, who inspired him in many moments in his career. I think you can trace directly to Andrew and his inspiration. Dr. G, of course, worked for me as the national security editor for us at Breitbart before he joined Trump World. And he has just been such a steadfast promoter of Andrew's values and his works. And I'm so grateful that he's our first guest to talk about Andrew. 
Dr. Gorka, thank you so much. And you're the first guest in what will be many guests celebrating Andrew this week. Uh, so congrats on that. Well, I, I'm truly honored, especially when I saw your tweet earlier this morning that I, uh, I retweeted that uh, the great one, Mark Levin, will be on with us uh, this hour. I yeah. saw him uh, yesterday at CPAC, so uh, it's, it's a great, great honor. And again, Dr. G's the author of many books. All of them are terrific. America First is his radio show on the Salem Networks, which I uh, always have liked the Salem Broadcasting Team uh, every afternoon, and the Gorka Reality Check Sundays on Newsmax. Andrew was a big tent guy, and uh, so was Donald Trump. Donald uh, Trump came in as a huge tent. We used to call it the Breitbart. Is it why this thing where you, you're, you're either with us or you're with the terrorist mentality? Uh, it is not something that Andrew would have wanted. I think Andrew was uh, trying to bring people into the fold who are not your typical um, uh, horn rim glasses, elbow patch wearing think tank conservative. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, let's go back in time with, with my affiliation with, 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 with Breitbart.com. Um, I, w- I was asked by Steve Bannon to come on board, as you know well, because you know, you're employee number one, to do quality control and, and a little bit of creative uh, input as national security editor for the most influential conservative website. And you know, I didn't need another hat. I didn't need another job. I was very happy uh, teaching for the U.S. military, teaching for the Marines at Quantico. And then I just thought of this challenge, and I thought, you know, we, we have a problem on the right. It has to do especially with national security. There's, there's a lack of, um, I mean, it's not even nuanced. It's not even sophisticated. It's just grown-up thinking when it comes to some questions. Because way back when, I think that was 2014, when, when I was approached, um, you know, I, if you're a conservative, like, you had two options on national security. You could be a, you're a naive, uh, bloodthirsty neocon who wants to invade other people's countries and quote-unquote, you know, uh, democratize them at the end of a gun barrel like Bill Crystal, Or you could take, you know, the Tucker Carlson angle and you could just say, well, we're neo-Buchananite isolationists and the rest of the world can go to hell. And I, and I thought this, this, is, this is a really poor set of options if you say you're a conservative. So I came on board, honored to serve, work with you guys, to say if you're a conservative, there is a middle road. And I think, you know, Donald Trump represented that. We didn't invade any countries. We actually brought our troops back. But America was a good friend to its friends, and our enemies were afraid of us. So, and and I, think, I think Andrew Breitbart would have been happy yeah. with that approach. Say, guys, just think a little, because you know much better than anybody else. He was a, a genius-level individual. That, that guy was an 80-pound brain, not just in his, his usage of social media and understanding social media trends and, and how culture works, but the guy just understood that, that you know, life is a little bit more complicated than two tribes. Wow, you you really uh, nailed this, Dr. G, because this is exactly my sensibilities, and I find myself increasingly, I would say, less inclined to dive into wars. But you know, I, I a couple of the strategic bombings that Donald Trump did, I just thought were, were were purely brilliant. And you still saw some people on the right acting like, I mean, I saw some people were in tears when we bombed this. What was the one night where we bombed Syria? We bombed terrorists in Syria for it was like fifteen minutes. No, we, we, there were people on the right who was, was in tears. I was over in the it. White House. And it was, you know, I, you know, I actually, because in the, in the preparation for that, I read the intelligence reports that we had that uh, we were about to see the imminent use of chemical weapons for a second time 
by the Syrian Air Force on uh, civilian yeah. targets on, on women and children. And uh, we said, we're not going to invade Syria. We're not going to do a you know, failed regime change like uh, you know, Hillary in, in Le- uh, Libya. But we're going to send a message to the murderous Bashar al-Assad. We're going to send a message to Putin and little Kim. And we dropped 52 cruise missiles on that Syrian Air Force base. And you know, the, the mastery, I mean, the utter branding mastery of the president, which is straight out of Andrew's playbook, is we're at Mar-a-Lago when we drop the cruise missiles and, and, and President Trump leans over to Xi Jinping over that plate of the world's best chocolate cake and says, by the way, Xi, I, I just dropped 52 cruise missiles on Syria. Uh, not, not in any <laughs> pretext for invasion, but to send a message. If you're a, if you're a yeah. bad guy, we do stuff. And that's why Putin didn't do anything when we were in the White House. And let's let's tie this all back to Andrew, okay? What was and, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but I think with a little uh, exaggeration, the one thing that drove Andrew more than anything else after the Clarence Thomas hearings, which were the you know the seminal moment, you have to read his book Righteous Indignation to find out how you know a self-professed you know drunken leftist at Tulane University becomes the biggest conservative warrior in the world what was the injustice of the Clarence Thomas hearings. And why? Because Andrew was driven by one thing more than anything else, and that's standing up to stinking bullies. Whether it's Joe Biden, the chairman of that committee that affected that high-tech lynching against a black conservative, or whether it's Xi Jinping, whether it's Putin, whether it's the mullahs in Iran, that's what President Trump did. And I think Andrew would have been very happy with the, the four years of our first administration. Dr. G, when did you first become aware of Andrew Breitbart? Oh, I was, you know, I was, I, I would say probably Acorn. I think it has to be Acorn when, when, you know, when Acorn comes on and, and watching all of his great, you know, th- those, those viral videos of him at CPAC and elsewhere where, you know, the, the, the left wing trash media would try and get him into some soundbite trap. And he just reamed them out. And you remember that? I think I shared that story with you when I was in the White House. And I, it, was, it was Easter Saturday morning, 8 a.m. And I was walking my dogs in the local park. And some Yahoo jumps out of his car with a, a, you know, a full you know, digital you know, f- f- camera and, and tries to you know, get me on record, film me in my, in, in, in my private time walking my dogs. And, and say, what's going on in the White House? And tell me about the different camps. And is, is Kushner undermining the president? And I just, I'd just been listening to Andrew's autobiography. And I, and I thought, okay, you're going to play that game? I'm going to play your game. And I whipped out my phone, switched on the video camera, and stuffed it in his face. And I said, who do yeah. you work for? What's your name? And it was hilarious. This guy, he ran across a dual carriageway to escape me because he couldn't take the heat. That, you know, that's when you realize Andrew Breitbart's had an effect on you, when you use his genius tactics against the stinking lying legacy media. I remember that, Dr. G, and you're so right on. It's exactly what Andrew would have wanted. Andrew loved the sea of new media he thought could surpass uh, the journalists in terms of their ability to actually report. And this is something that was, uh, it should embolden people to this day. It is one of his lasting legacies among many of them. Dr. Sebastian Gorka well, gives with said, me. He said, he yeah. said we're, all, we're, we're all journalists now. You remember yeah. that speech where he That's pulled right. out his phone 
that you have more power than you know, a, a classic TV crew 10 years ago. You are now a citizen journalist, and he's so right. Dr. Sebastian Gorka was the deputy assistant to President Trump. He also was the national security editor for us at News, and he now hosts America First on the Salem Station in the afternoon and the Gorka Reality Check on Newsmax, very prominent on the social web as well. Hey, do you have a favorite Andrew anecdote or story, Dr. G, that uh, resonates with you that comes to mind first? So the most important thing for, for me about Andrew uh, was chapter six of his autobiography, Rights to Indignation. Yes. Because, you know, I, I, I thought I, I knew the swamp pretty well. I thought I knew the left, having been born to parents who escaped a communist dictatorship. But man alive, that, that chapter six is, is the most accurate summary of the left's plan to destroy Western civilization that anyone can ever read. And in the space of about a dozen pages, he tells you who Gramsci is who the Frankfurt School are, Adorno, Marcuse, the New Left, Alinsky, Hillary, Obama. And that one chapter actually you know, inspired me to write my third book, The War for America's Soul, where, 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 where I had a little more space to expand upon what, what Andrew uh, gave us in his autobiography. And, and just to make sure people understand, what we are witnessing, what we are fighting now isn't Obama, isn't Hillary, isn't Bernie, isn't AOC. It is a 90-year plan that the left has had to deny objective truth and to undermine Western civilization. Andrew nailed it, and you've got to read it, guys. It is, you know, along with Hillbilly Elegy that explains why a non-politician like Donald Trump won for the first time ever in American history. Those two books, Righteous Indignation, Hillbilly Elegy, are uh, the most important things you can read outside of the Bible right now as an American. It is pretty remarkable of all of the things where Andrew is prescient, and there's so many, and we'll talk about so many this week, Dr. G, that his nailing the fact that critical race theory was a major threat, the Frankfurt School and these you know, European thinkers who came to America who were trying to Marxist aside from they realized Marxism wasn't working and they had to try to figure out how to make it work in the United States, how all of these people were, were having a undue influence. And now we talk about it constantly. A, a decade after he died, we talk about some of the exact same things he was talking about a decade ago. I mean, that is truly brilliance. Well, it is because, you know, his reaction, his analysis, of the Clarence Thomas hearings are in fact, you know, a, a proto-analysis of critical race theory, that they knew they couldn't take him down based upon just politics, so they tacked him, they, they made him on the black because he's a nominee of a Republican president. Nobody understood what he was saying, but now we are seeing it across the nation. And, and let me just say one thing, because everybody can quote Andrew when it comes to uh, politics is downstream from culture. You know, you, if, if you're cool, you know how to quote that. But do you know what it actually means, guys, to all the Breitbart listeners out there? You need to understand what that catchphrase means. It means the following, and this is more important than ever. When an issue arrives in Washington, D.C., I don't care what the issue is, abortion, gun rights, big tech, the border, it has already been decided 10 to 20 years ago in the culture, in the schools, in the media, in movies. You cannot win a political fight 
in the political arena. Once it's in D.C., it is done and dusted. That's what Andrew meant. And that's why everyone listening has to understand we are in a culture war. And every single one of your listeners, Alex, has a role to play in that culture war because that's how we take America back. Dr. Sebastian Gorka again is with me. Dr. G, I got time for uh, one more uh, one more lesson from Andrew that you think the next generation of citizen journalists who might be listening that they should take with them. Okay, the the the, the biggest one, and this is one of my messages, is 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 courage. This is what I spoke about at, at CPAC yesterday. Courage, courage, courage. The biggest thing. Yes, they're throttling us on social media. Yes. Twitter, Facebook, etc. We've got to go to Truth Social. I get it. Most important thing you can do, be like Andrew. Never, ever censor yourself. When you're at the water cooler, when you're at a barbecue, when you're at the local block party, when you're on social media, if you catch yourself going, oh, I better not say that because somebody might be shocked. That's when you say it even louder. Never, ever give in. Never, ever kneel to the mob because Andrew didn't. You are sorely missed, my friend. I hope you are happy smiling down on us right now because you have taught us a great lesson. The only thing bullies understand is when you stand up to them. And that is Andrew Breitbart's legacy. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, you hit it out of the park, my friend. Thank you so much. God bless you and the listeners. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. I like it. I like it. Even more appropriate. Mark Levin next. We'll be right back. No list of the most influential conservatives in America would be complete without having Mark Levin towards the top. Mark Levin isn't just a host with me on SiriusXM Patriot, number 125, one of my colleagues. He doesn't just have Levin TV and his Fox show and his best-selling books, but he's also someone who deeply understood the life and legacy of Andrew Breitbart and even got to know him personally during Andrew's life. It is always a pleasure to catch up with Mark under any circumstances, but to talk about Andrew Breitbart, my mentor and our founder of Breitbart News, well, uh, it is a treat and you can hear it now. Mark, it's great to have you on. We were talking about Andrew Breitbart today and Andrew was known for two modes, jocularity and righteous indignation. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the righteous indignation part because this is, I think, uh, even though you can be a fun-loving guy and I think your sense of humor is better than uh, most people in talk radio, but I do think people tune into you every day because they love to see you fired up. Andrew had that too, and I feel like that is a tactic that is so necessary, the ability to get fired up about this country and about our values. You know, uh, there's... Uh, let me put it this way. He is greatly missed. I mean, he's greatly missed for people who knew him personally, but he's greatly missed because of his import, you know, in this battle. I think about him. I think about Rush. I think about a few others that we could sure as hell use right now. And uh, he would call me from time to time. He was the same guy publicly in many ways as he was on the phone. And yes. uh, he went into these battles, and, of course, they tried to take him out over and over again. But you got to have the, the willingness to step out there and to do your thing and to do it right. And um, he had something different. His, his ability to create drama around issues 
was very, very important. I, I think of the Wiener case in particular, which mm-hmm. was crucial and hilarious at the same time, where he takes over that press conference in New York, and he says that we have photos and so forth and so on, and takes the guy out, which he should have, because the guy's a pervert. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but, but something very, very special. And I would say, Alex, you, you have uh, really tapped into the two aspects of him, I think correctly and and look what he uh, left behind and look what you've picked up here and look what uh, you've created everybody goes to Breitbart website everybody wants to know what you guys are doing you guys if not the best among the best and staying on top of the news and, and explaining who's doing what even if people don't agree 100% um, they know that what you're doing is very good and the media hates you because uh, you guys are so thoroughly accurate, you're far more accurate than they're ever accurate, and uh, and you're daring. This is important today. It's important. You know, I tell people, Alex, in your own life, in your own daily life, you can do this. You have to do this if we're going to save yes. this country. You've got to be brave. You've got to be out there. You cannot allow these people to define you and control you and and affect your life. I tell my kids, you really do have one life to live. And don't be on your deathbed one day and say, I coulda, woulda, shoulda. Uh, you know, at least take some comfort in knowing you fought the good fight, you did it in a, in, a, uh, in a tactical and smart way, and now you leave it to the next generation. That's how I think of things. Life is so damn short. You don't know when it's gonna end. Make, make it consequential. And I don't just mean for yourself. But I mean for the uh, society around you. You look at this guy in Ukraine, this president of Ukraine. This guy's going to be remembered for a thousand years, regardless of what happens, because he's standing up to these Russians. He's not running. And, and, and I think because his people see him standing strongly, they're standing strongly and they're fighting with whatever they have. He's going to be remembered. So people who stand up against all odds whether it's Churchill in World War II, um, whether it is uh, this guy, they are remembered. And if you really think about this, there's really only about a thousand people in history whose names are remembered. You don't even remember your own great, 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 great grandparent. You don't even know who they are for the most part, right? But there are people that you will remember, that history will remember. There's not a lot of them when you consider there's hundreds and billions of us. And they're the ones that take a stand and, and, uh, and are righteous. You connect so many dots here that are so important. And one of the many values and uh, good traits that Andrew Breitbart had was he was courageous and he would stand up to people, be it in the media, be it physically sometimes with going to Occupy rallies and stuff like that. You do see this in so many of the heroes that really are remembered. And I think Zelensky, what he's saying right now that he needs ammo, not a ride. I mean, that's iconic stuff that will live on. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people look to Andrew for his for his courage. But you also note something about how you only have one life to lead. And Andrew had a very interesting life and a rich life, a filling life. He had lots of children. And he had a really interesting backstory from working with Ariana Huffington to Matt Drudge um, to being a music journalist. And before he became well known as the guerrilla journalist that inspired so many people. Uh, but to think of what he, how much living he did in 43 years, uh, it's the he did more living in 43 years than most people would do in 100 lifetimes. And that in, in and of itself is inspirational. It's remarkable. 
And again, you can figure, you can see just a handful who have. And I'm not putting them in this category or anything like that, but to, to the point I raised, to the point you're underscoring and so forth, you look at some of these people, you look at Alexander the Great, I think he died at 32 or 36. You look at Martin Luther King assassinated in his early 40s. You can go down the list, John Kennedy assassinated. Whether you agree with people or not, it's not the point. The point is their lives were consequential. They had an impact. And for the crazy-ass left-wing media list, are you comparing Andrew to, to uh, Martin Luther King? I, I just said I'm not comparing anybody to anybody. I'm underscoring the point that you want to have a consequential life. And here's the thing. All the people writing about Zelensky will never be remembered, ever. Uh, all the people who attack Breitbart will never be remembered. The people who work today at the Washington Post and the New York Times will never be remembered. They're not even a footnote to a footnote in history. It's as if they never existed. And the truth is, um, it's as if none of us ever existed if we don't have consequential lives, either with our families or the greater society, if you think about it. Uh, because again, what are there a thousand people in history that we can remember? Maybe not even a thousand. And these are people who've done consequential things. Unfortunately, some of them have done horrifically evil things, but some of them have done magnificently great things. And, uh, we want to be on that side, obviously. So I encourage people, I don't care if you're a plumber, electrician, a doctor, a nurse, a janitor, whatever you are in your own life, you can make a huge difference and you don't know where these things are going to lead. Mark Levin again is with me. Mark, when did you first become aware of Andrew Breitbart? I think he and I spoke when he worked for uh, Drudge. He would reach out to me now and then and ask some questions about a story or if I had a story, something like that. But that's a long time ago. He was sort of uh, one of the invisible worker, worker bees behind the very secretive Matt Drudge. That's, that's when I think I first... When he was going through that battle with the agriculture department, and I forget the whole case and everything else, I was regularly giving him legal advice and helping him get lawyers and that sort of thing. Um, so we talked a lot privately. And, of course, I promoted the site because I believed in it very, very strongly in its early days, its infancy. So it's one of the things I try to do. Uh, you know, if there's talent out there, I have them as substitutes on my there is talent out there. I bring them on as substitutes. People were promoting their podcast before I even knew what the hell a podcast was, <laughs> you know, on my show. Uh, it's fine by me, more the merrier. I mean, I'm not going to live forever. We need a farm team and the farm team needs a farm team. That's all good by me. I see a lot of great, young, smart people out there. Uh, it's very, very important. You know, you'll hear me on my show mock the backbenchers. I just mock people who rip me off. But other than that, I want people to to succeed. And, uh, you know, we have a great working relationship I do with you and Joel and others. I bumped into Matt at CPAC. You know, it's it's, it's fun. It's good. It's, it's, it's important to have uh, guys like you who are out there uh, carrying an awful lot of the, the burden. It's very important. Uh, this is something that he was really incredible at. And I think a lot of the people who I respect the most are people who are generous with their brands and with their trying to give their imprimatur uh, to people who are trying to do their best to fight the good fight. Andrew was an ultimate talent scout. I do think that that's a strength 
of his uh, of his background. By the way, uh, Mark Levin was won the Andrew Breitbart Award at CPAC that we gave in 2014. You had an incredible speech there. I got to introduce you. That was one of the thrills for me. Have you thought about that award eight years later? Because yep. your career was huge then, and now it is not even. I mean, it's it's off the charts at this point. Uh, how is the world different from then that moment eight years ago? Well, you guys are. Uh different you're more impactful at this point you know you're, you've 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 taken what andrew left you and you built it horizontally and vertically as we say in the antitrust world so uh that's very very important right part the site the brand did not die it's it's been empowered well the world has changed because you know i write about and talk about this this uh, movement towards tyranny in this country and I think it has really sped up and in a way that even I am really kind of shocked about. I talked a little bit about this at CPAC, pressing the point that we are constitutional conservatives, that we believe in unalienable rights, that we believe in what the Tocqueville said, that there's a circle of liberty around all of us. And that if we use these phrases, nationalism, populism, just make sure you know what you're saying, because um, the left uses them, communist regimes use them. I like to say Americanism because this is a very unique country. And John Locke, who was very important in terms of uh, the founding of this country, the founders all read John Locke. He was the most influential philosopher at the time that they read at that time. They said, well, where is this country you write about it? This, this society you write about with individual liberty and these other things. He said America, because America has not been poisoned by monarchy or feudalism or any of these other things. And quite frankly, America wasn't poisoned in the 1800s by communism, but it is now. And this is what we have to battle. All these, a lot of great came out of Europe, a lot of bad came out of Europe. You know, the Third Reich, fascism, communism. This is America. This is Americanism. This is unique. This is unique to human history. And we need to understand what that means. But this is a cultural thing. It's bigger. This is a societal thing. Critical race theory is not socialism. This transgender movement is not socialism. In many ways, the economic attack is socialism, but people need to be called what they are and that they know that people don't like Marx and they don't like Marxism, even if they don't understand it, they know it's bad. And we need to, we need to start doing things like that. Yeah, and it's one that Andrew shared because Andrew was working on exactly these types of issues when he passed away 10 years ago. And you're writing about them now, and uh, luckily millions of people are reading them and getting exposed to these ideas. Uh, Mark Levin, a friend who's been relentless in promoting us at Breitbart over the years, which we're so grateful for, and encouraging us along the way on this station, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Levin TV on Blaze TV, Life, Liberty, and Levin on Fox News, American Marxism is the book. Uh, thanks as always, my friend. Alex, you're great. My best to you and the team there, and God bless to you and the audience. God bless you, my friend. We'll be right back. One of the things that Andrew Breitbart I know was personally proudest of was that he was a talent scout, and he liked to identify people who weren't necessarily your typical college Republican conservative. And I was in college Republican, so no knock on them. It's just he had this eye for apostates, for people who were disaffected liberals or even leftists, because that was his background. He was someone who was a factory setting, as he would say, default liberal, who had to see the light over time through listening and reading Rush Limbaugh, through watching the Clarence Thomas hearings. But one such person he identified was Brandon Darby, who was someone who was a committed leftist 
And Andrew had saw some of the work he was doing to expose some of the violent nature of the hard left. And it really spoke to Andrew, it resonated with Andrew. And Andrew would promote Brandon and eventually hire him. And Brandon would go on years later to be the top border reporter in America for us at Breitbart News, running our Cartel Chronicles. Brandon's story is so interesting, and you hear just a bit of it right now. Brandon, how did you meet Andrew? It's a pretty amazing story. Could you give it to us? I had worked undercover uh, with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and a bunch of guys, you know, people were trying to shut down the Republican National Convention in 2008 by any means necessary, right? They wanted to make shut it down so that Palin and, and McCain couldn't be uh, nominated as the candidates, right? And uh, they got really violent. They got violent and they got destructive. There were thousands of people from across the country who had showed up to do it, even from Western Europe, uh, to shut it down. And uh, a bunch of guys made Molotovs to throw at cops and delegate, Republican delegates. And, um, you know, I helped bust them. And the left media went, the mainstream media went wild on me. And when my name came out uh, in Discovery, and uh, every good thing in my life I had ever done was erased. Uh, everything, every nonprofit I had helped create, every relief organization, every good thing I'd done was was over, and I was getting attacked relentlessly. And Andrew heard uh, a show attacking me on uh, This American Life, and he heard it attacking me, and he started researching me, and it just so happened that I had, uh, you know, I, I was about to lose my mind because I was attacked so much, and. Uh, I saved up and pulled up some money, and I went and bought this old F100, you know, Ford uh, pickup truck uh, from this guy online. And when I bought it from him, he was like, "Hey, you're Brandon Darby," and I was like, "Oh man, please don't do that." Like, I, and he goes, "No, no, no, it's fine." So I got the truck, I fixed it up, and uh, it turns out that that guy had been roommates with uh, Andrew during college. So he gave my number to Andrew and Andrew called me. And I didn't know who Andrew was. It was before he had Breitbart, right? Or it was before big government. And he was like, hey, thanks for what you did. Uh, why don't you fight back? And I said, Andrew, I do fight back, but they don't print what I say. They don't, they don't print my, my responses. They put words in my mouth I didn't say. They, they're misrepresenting everything I do and say. And he said, well, I'm about to start a website why don't you fight back on my website? And I said, well, I don't even know how to write. He goes, it doesn't matter. I have editors who will teach you how to write. And um, he said, but you can, I'm starting this website. You can fight back and defend yourself on my website, tell your story and defend other people like you. And, uh, and I won't edit what you say other than make sure it sounds good, but I won't, I won't tell you what to say. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And then he flew to Austin and uh, he came and met me and, and we started a, uh, a really good friendship after that. And that's how that happened. You know, and he just told me we were drinking wine together and he said, I remember he said, Hey, why are you fighting back like this? Why do you want to do this? And I said, I want to tell you that it's because, you know, America needs to hear this story and America needs to know the truth about the left. And I said, I, I can tell you that. And that's partly true, but I have this little baby girl and I'm going to end up, one of these guys are going to do something to me or hurt me. And uh, all my little girl's gonna have to read about her dad is what these leftists have said about me, you know? 
And I don't want that to be the only thing out there for her to read if they do something to me. And he said, don't worry, brother, I'm going to make you whole. And he did make me whole. He really did. You know, the, the attacks are still out there. And, but, but he gave me a platform to fight back from. Um, and then that's what we've done is we've, you know, most of the people at Breitbart, if you look at what we do, especially the Andrew hires, right, the people who, like you and, and Nolte, and what we do is we find people who are being attacked and unfairly, and we give them a platform to share their yeah. story. That's what our Cartel Chronicle does. It's the same thing. We're just doing it for people in Mexico who are being attacked by the cartel rather than the left in the U.S., you know? Uh, Brandon, this reminds me of one of my favorite things that Andrew brought to the conservative movement was he was was looking for people who did not fit neatly into the Republican establishment or the National Review type would consider a conservative. And I think that this was one of the parts of his legacy that doesn't get enough credit is he was able to take people who either came from Hollywood or came from they sort of reformed people from the left. Uh, it's a, and he wanted to empower those people. Apostate liberals were some of his favorite people. And I think this is such an important legacy and we cannot get away from it. We cannot get too tribal if we want to survive. You know, I, I, I'm obviously, and you know, Andrew talked about that. He, he, um, it was really bizarre, actually. It was just out of the blue. This guy had really nothing to gain from me. I wasn't a great writer. He didn't know that I would be good at the border someday. Or, you know, I had nothing really to give him. It's true. It's um, true. That that, that and, predates your incredible border coverage. Oh, absolutely. And he, he had nothing to gain. And then people started calling me, and they're like, hey, there's this guy at CPAC talking about you on stage, and here's a, a video. And I'm like... What is CPAC? You know, I didn't know what that was. <laughs> and, and, and so um, I, I like watched, and he just started making this point to tell my story every time he talked. And then he started having me tell my story in front of him before he would give speeches. And this guy just took me under his wing and gave me a platform to fight from. That's, with nothing to gain. Now, it turns out later, I think my presence has benefited the company greatly, but he didn't know that at the time. You know, he had no idea that I would, I could do those, those things. He, he was just, he thought it was unfair and he, he like defended me and, uh, it meant so much, you know, to my mother and, and now to my daughter and, and to all the people who love me, who were watching me get attacked. And we see this all the time when there's, you know, it's not that there's not cops who do bad things or, or people in the FBI who do, but I get it, but but the vast majority, no, they're, they're serving our country. They're doing something good. They're keeping people safe. And we watch a cop get attacked, and then the entire media establishment focuses down on them, finds everything wrong they've ever done simply because they shot someone who was trying to stick them with a knife or something. And, and we watch this happen. And, and what that person feels like is like the world is over. And what that person's mother and wife and, uh, or husband or the loved ones feel like so, so what Andrew did for me and what Andrew did for my family was, was profound. And I didn't have to be a perfect conservative because I'm not one, right? Like free speech, I'm your guy. Firearms, I'm your guy. Like uh, uh, proud of our country, I'm your guy. Like we could go down the line of things that I agree with the right on, but like healthcare, probably not your guy. And um, a number of other things, I'm, I'm much more populist probably or, or moderate. Um, uh, and, but that didn't matter 
And and so it is important, you know, that we're big tent people and that people who are not perfect conservatives uh, but are with us on most things, I think that we need we need to, to embrace. But uh, he felt that way. I got American parts. I got American faith. Thanks to producers Haley and Greg Eben. Robert Marlowe helps us pick topics. And thanks to all of you who have given us five-star review, told 10,000 friends and family members about the show, help us move up the charts. All that is immeasurably helpful. And uh, you deserve a special shout-out for that. All right, we'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>